Welcome to Bad Patient. I'm Robin Donovan. And I'm Laura Marker. And we are two non-medical, non-experts taking an unreasonably deep dive into this week's health news. And this week's words are heart, statin, junk food, and sweet! Sweet! (laughs) All right. We don't have a lot of time. We can't make a lot of small talk. This is going to be a lightning round of bad patients. But I just need to let you know that last night for dinner, I had pancakes and gummy bears, and it was everything. Really? That's, yeah. That's, like, amazing. Well, it's not amazing because very, very fast backstory. I was, like, biking home after, like, a really intense workout. Mom, if you're listening, cover your ears. And... I, like, took the most gentle possible fall off of my bike. Like, I got my tire stuck in a train track, and I got it out, but then the other tire got stuck in a different train track going a different direction, and I was super tired, and it was rainy, and I just, like, like very slowly, very gently fell, and I am not bruised, and I am not sore, and everything was fine, but my emotions were wounded, and I realized that I probably, like, my blood sugar was really low, so I stopped at Goodwill because I love Goodwill, and I got some gummy bears, and then I went home and I made pancakes, because that's what you do when you fall on the ground. Right? Yes. <laughs> All right. No time for comments. What's our first story? Our first story comes from CNET, and it's, here's the first 3D printed heart made from actual human tissue. Okay. So, um, I'm excited about this already. I read the story last night, although not the CNET version, like the Jerusalem Post version, because for some reason Google thinks I care about Jerusalem Post, but it's so exciting. So uh, Tel Aviv University just announced that the scientists there are one step closer to manufacturing hearts that can be translated into humans. So they successfully 3D printed a, a heart using human tissues and vessels, according to their paper that was published in Advanced Science. Um, And it's not full size. It's about as big as a rabbit's heart, but it's a major breakthrough. Mm -hmm. And just so Uh, people know, this is not a fully functional heart. Like, it can contract, but it does not pump out blood. Correct. That is the thing that it says. Um, So they used 3D printing, um, and they used... uh, Fatty tissue, I think. Sure. Yeah, fatty tissue from patients as ink for the 3D printer. Um, And then they uh, used a blueprint to create the tissue models, and they slowly printed out um, a 3D printer, and they hope to eventually be able to use it in animal models in the future. So they're thinking like 10 years yeah, and, and I think one of the ways to think about this working is that when cells are in concert with other cells, is that the right word? When cells are like in the proximity of other cells, they will develop certain functions depending on what type of cells you're using. So so the way that organ reproduction could be possible is just by getting the right cells like next to each other. That's the most simplified possible version. If you'd like to drop some hard science on us related to this, you can email hello at thebadpatient.com. But basically, the cells are the ink, and and once they're together, they're going to function like in a similar way as they function in the organ. And so the more complex you're able to engineer this process, the closer you can get to an actual heart, which is why probably they have a heart, but it doesn't beat, right? Like they haven't like figured it all out. But I, mm-hmm. I would say that this is a, this is a step forward. And then accurate use of the word breakthrough which we rarely see in modern writing yay Woo. good job yep seen it <laughs> all right was that fast enough or do you have further things that you would like to comment upon next story next story comes from cnn it's half the people prescribe 
statins don't reach cholesterol goals after two years, study says. Um, so it looked at uh, data that was submitted for um, that over um, had 165,411 people that were surprised statins between 1990 and 2016. Um, and they defined the appropriate response to statin therapy as a reduction of 40% or more uh, in LDL or bad cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did um, fewer than half the people enrolled in this in the 26-year study period. 48.8% achieved the targeted cholesterol levels within the two-year mark. And just over half, uh, 51.2, falls short, um, according to a study published in the journal Heart. Uh, So, and then it goes on and talks about, like, why it's important. So this is looking at the UK, but uh, we have similar populations, and they think that it can be extrapolated for the American population. Mm -hmm. So even though, and it's looking at people who were prescribed a statin that did not have um, heart disease or stroke right before the prescription i clicked through to the study page and they are saying that when you don't lower this ldl you're going to have a significantly increased risk of future cardiovascular disease which i think is somewhat Mm -hmm. controversial right now like the link between cholesterol and heart disease but um you know i guess the standard still exists there Ooh, and the link in the story links to the actual full study. Hello. What? Amazing. It's amazing. So, yeah, so just because you have a satin put put in, it still requires effort on your part. So it's part of uh, building up that research to show that, you know, diet and exercise is still important. Yeah, although, <laughs> listen, listen to this, listen to this from the study. Multiple patient characteristics, including sex age, smoking status, body weight, diet, and physical activity have been reported to contribute to variations in statin-induced LDLC reduction. So they're saying the drug working. But the impact of these factors is considered to be modest. So interestingly, the study authors were saying that whether you smoke, how much you weigh, what you eat, and how active you are only have a modest effect. So... And they also said that variations in patient genotypes, so just say, like, your DNA, and probably non-adherence, which is the best phrase in the whole paper, may be an important explanation for this. So, um, I'm guessing that there... Okay, so they said non-adherence in this case is a reference to how much you take the medication as prescribed. So they're saying medications don't always work, but it sounds like they may not have been able to control or in some cases, like the research that they're, they're saying, like, what can, to what can we attribute all of this? And basically it's everyone screwing around. So stop screwing around. <laughs> yeah, people's gosh. This is a cool study. <laughs> That's awesome, right? Yeah. I mean... Well done, CNN. Well done, Heart. Yeah. Dear Heart, <laughs> thank you for being open access. I am going to yeah. include a link to the full study in the show notes for this episode. Yay. But I do think we need All to right. keep we need to keep our eyes on this whole relationship between cardiovascular disease, 
cholesterol levels and actual day-to-day activities like diet and exercise because there's so much stuff that's starting to say that the statins aren't working or that cholesterol doesn't matter and blah, blah, blah. And I'm very, very concerned that it's all going to come down to sugar consumption. I don't think it, like, it won't really, but like, I'm telling you, sugar is not good. And that's just not what I want to be true, you know? So, la, 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 la. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I got some good news and bad news coming up then. What you got? What you got? So the next story is from fizz.org, and its new study finds simple way to inoculate teens against junk food marketing. So this is looking at uh, the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Try to see if they would be able to change teenager behavior with regards to junk food, and they published in the Nature Human Behavior. (laughs) Shockers? No. Well, they did. So they had two big findings. They So they did like a two different types of control group or two different things. One with a control group with a traditional, like, don't do this because it's bad for you. There are long-term effects that could, you know, negatively impact you. Mm-hmm. Calories, blah, blah, blah. And the other one was like, look at all these things that the food marketing is trying to trick you into doing. You know, don't be tricked by the man. And for boys, the don't be tricked by the man was much more effective than the traditional teaching of calories and things like that. Mm -hmm. But for girls, both were effective. And it looked like it has a a slightly long-term effect. They came back to the students through the end of the year, which was three months. And the students who participated were less likely to to go for sugary drinks or junk food than those those of their peers who did not participate. That makes sense to me. And then they were trying to explain the difference between the girls, and they think that both work for boys and girls, but the traditional calories are bad plays into uh, societal pressure onto young girls for being thin, and both will work. But they recommend their stick it to the man uh, way because that is less body shaming. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Wait, so just to clarify, because we might have just misstated, both work for girls, but only the don't get tricked campaign worked for boys. And we're saying that's because Correct. girls are sensitive to mentions of the high calorie value of junk food in the original ads that were kind of more like guilting people into not doing it. That makes total sense right. to me because right. because yeah. girls start so. thinking about weight around puberty, right? And like yeah. And I can and I can I can remember thinking about it like pretty early on. So. Yeah. Which yeah. is shocking and ridiculous. Yeah, so it's looking at the public health issue, so trying to come back, come, combat the junk food and the obesity epidemic that we have in the United States. So there might be another way, rather than imparting facts to teenagers <laughs> in the hopes that that causes changes in their behavior. <laughs> I think Generation so. Z is so much more advocacy-oriented than millennials. Like, millennials came into the workforce wanting fairness and a level playing field and a sense of community and work-life balance and i feel like generation z is coming in with like a flaming torch for social justice uh preventing climate change and like equality 
which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's changes. Changes are coming. So and they can uh, be inoculated against junk food. So that's good. <laughs> I mean, we we're saying they could be, but modern ad campaigns are so sophisticated. And I say this with all the veracity of someone who just spent a bunch of hours watching Mad Men during a, during a period of illness. So I'm telling you, advertising, even back then, was very sophisticated. But in all honesty, right? Like, unfortunately, public health campaigns never have the budget that Nestle, General Mills, Kraft have to convince us that junk food is awesome and... As someone who recently enjoyed some M&Ms and some Gushers on a really long bike ride, I have to say sometimes it's good. They're right. Those things are delicious. Yeah. But, yeah, I love I love the justice angle. I love the don't be tricked by advertising angle because I also think it plays into, well, people just hating advertising. That's why we have all those social media, quote, influencers, which is a whole nother topic for a whole nother day. What's our last story, Laura? Another kitten caboodle. Yes. Our last story comes from express.co.uk, and it's high blood pressure. Eat this sweet treat. Could help you lower your reading. No, no. Looking at dark chocolate. No. (laughs) Jesus. No. To help lower your high high blood pressure. Is this a tabloid? Did you literally send me it? It's a review of 15 trials to suggest a cocoa-rich chocolate reduces blood pressure in people with high blood pressure. And guess who funds these studies? You should look into a high-quality chocolate that contains a minimum of 70% cocoa and eats a single square or one ounce each day to reap benefits. It also suggests eating plenty of fresh fruit and vegetables. But that can have some other negative effects. What? Which they go into. Oh my god! Uh, but they don't go into negative effects for chocolate, so it's a little one-sided. Okay, I and just... then there's like beautiful food porn of like pieces of chocolate and strangely watermelon because watermelon got a call out. So. Great watermelon. What? <laughs> I can barely even get to this story because there's so many pop-up ads that I can like barely read it. Okay, I'm calling it. The source is garbage. Like What? Yeah. They were all equally submitted to me by Google News. No, I don't know what you're talking about, Robin. I am like, scandalized I don't even, I don't that even, you would feel this way. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. I can't. Seriously, there's so many ads. I can't get to the story. It's kind of like grayed out. Like I kind of see. Oh, I had, I had to click that I accept cookies. They've, they've got a link to the review. All right. So the, the like chocolate cocoa industry is funding some of these studies. This we know. But like, no, no, what? you should not be eating chocolate in place of fruits and vegetables. What? Like, do they cite any? Do they interview anyone for this article? No. Oh, they, they went on a website. Explains Blood Pressure UK. Hey, don't you have a professor who doesn't like anthropomorphism? Here it is. Blood Pressure UK is a nonprofit. <laughs> they can't explain anything to us. Your kidneys help to control your blood pressure by controlling the amount of fluid stored in your body. The more fluid, the higher your blood pressure. That's something that they took off of a website somewhere. Fantastic. 
Now they're telling us like how our kidneys work. None of this explains why chocolate should be good for us. They do have a link to the study. It's a meta-analysis published in BMT Medicine in 2010. I swear to God, I will throw this microphone. <laughs> they're citing a study that's nine years old. No. I don't understand. I don't understand, Robin. What's what's the issue? <laughs> what's not the it issue? Seems, it seems super trustworthy. I so, don't even... Just say it. One study... This is weird because I don't even know how they chose this as a news item. Like, I don't, like how did they find this? Power oh. of the internet. <laughs> My God... So the study, the meta-analysis was 15 studies, and their conclusion was that dark chocolate is is superior to a placebo in reducing systolic hypertension and or diastolic prehypertension. So call that blood pressure, high blood pressure. Flavanol-rich mm-hmm. chocolate did not significantly reduce mean mean blood pressure or average blood pressure bef- below 140 over 80. So. So there's nothing in here about fruit, okay? There's there's nothing in here about produce <laughs> and not eating produce. Oh my god. Interventions ran from 2 to 18 weeks. Uh type of control used may have been an indirect predictor of blood pressure outcome, meaning like that they weren't superbly designed. I don't know. I cannot, like, I can't analyze this in six seconds, but I just, there's been a lot of problematic. You find it highly suspicious? Yes, because we, <laughs> we, we know, like, as of recently that a lot of the initial studies were funded by, by lobbies. And so it's just, like, not reliable. And also, we sometimes get tricked into believing that a meta-analysis is more trustworthy than it actually is, but it's, like, garbage in, garbage out. I can do a meta-analysis on, like, 12 toddlers observations on a playground and just because i took into account 12 different studies if they're 12 bad studies or if they're 12 studies that aren't representative or they're 12 studies that just like weren't well designed then the whole thing is moot so i feel like we've gotten into this like worship state of meta analyses and it's it's kind of like not well founded i mean it should be really, really hard to do a meta-analysis, but I feel like sometimes researchers are just doing them because it's like a low-budget project. Because you don't have to do any actual research. You're just like, you're like gathering other people's research. Like, how about this? No one can do a meta-analysis unless they themselves have done original work, like, in the field. I don't want, like, you can't, okay. re- you can't be researching other people's <laughs> research. I've had enough. Also, I just... Okay. <laughs> I'm done. Did you know that it was from 2010? St- How- it's like if you picked a story that would make me the most mad. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Robin. I Other- always pick the best <laughs> sources well, and studies for you to learn about because I value you and our listeners. <laughs> thank you so much for that. And if you're one of our listeners and you enjoyed this super speed 
episode of Bad Patient. You can listen to all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your media. We're online at thebadpatient.com, on Twitter as The Bad Patient, and you can email us your story ideas, or if you send us a voice memo, we will play your question on the episode and answer it. And you can email that to hello at thebadpatient.com. Until next time, we are Bad Patient.